on the Connecticut entrepreneurship ecosystem. My name is Dave Bernard from Martha Kalina. I'm here today with Chris DeMauro from Sublime Exposure and our special guest host Ojala Name with Reset. Ojala, Chris, we have a wonderful guest today. Uh, I'd like to introduce Michaela Kingsley. Michaela, tell us about where you're from. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, as you said, I'm Michaela Kingsley. I run the Patricelli Center for Social Entrepreneurship at Wesleyan University right here in Connecticut. We're in Middletown. See, I'm really beginning to dislike having guests on this show. And the reason why is because they all have voices made for radio. And I do not. I I'm have a face jealous. for radio. <laughs> Pat, you do. <laughs> no, 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 uh, no, no, no qualms here. No, Michaela, thank you very much for coming on board. I got to uh, meet Michaela by presenting to one of her classes at the Patricelli Center um, and giving them a sort of a legal basics 101. And uh, it's great to know that Wesleyan is involved in the entrepreneurship e ecosystem. I actually had no idea what was going on at Wesleyan. So the Patricelli Center was actually created about six years ago. Honestly, social entrepreneurship has always been in the DNA of the school, the culture of the school. Our students tend to recognize problems and want to solve them using innovative tactics, but we brought sort of a formal structure to it about six years ago, and we are looking for ways for these students who are doing great interdisciplinary work in the classroom to be able to translate that work after college and out to the real world. Uh, so yeah, um, that that kind of come out of. <laughs> there was a silence because we were fiddling with the uh, sound volume. Dave there. distracted me. I had a question. Um, was this kind of a response to like the uh, uh, the recession? Was this sort of like a, an effort to kind of give people a, a step up? Great question. Um, I don't think there was really any tie. Although at that time, the university was looking to keep moving forward in a time where the economy was hard, but we had a number of players who were very committed to civic engagement and community connections. And this grew more out of that than economics. Mm -hmm. And uh, our structure were embedded right in a hub of civic engagement programs on campus. And so we are doing this work through a lens of change making, not purely startups and entrepreneurship, although in order to do a good job and stay on the cutting edge, we have to bring entrepreneurship into it. So nothing against entrepreneurship per se, but that's not really actually the core to our program, even though we are called the Center for Social Entrepreneurship. So what does that look like? What, um, you know, if, if you're really trying to turn out change makers, it seems more so than uh, traditional entrepreneurs, what does that look like? What are the students up to? Um, what are the activities they get engaged in? And, and yeah, what's a day for you look like? Great. So some of it is about developing practical skills for the nonprofit, nonprofit world, for-profit world, and public sector. A lot of it is about connecting dots. So if they're studying early childhood development and they're interested in the way early learning works and they want to get to know about the education world more broadly and start to look for innovative ways to improve it, they may end up at our office. So an example of a group I work with, Kindergarten Kickstart, was born out of the psychology department at Wesleyan. Mm. They are providing a five-week pre-K program for children who are entering kindergarten 
not ready, not quite ready for the kindergarten curriculum as it exists now. This program is free or very low cost. It's provided in partnership with the local public schools and they use evidence-based, play-based tactics to help the children prepare in math and literacy for entering kindergarten. So it's that partnership element and connecting the dots between what they're learning in the classroom and the change they want to see mm -hmm. in the world that we help them then professionalize and operationalize. That's awesome. So do most of the students come from non-economics or business backgrounds? I mean, it's Wesleyan, so there's a lot of different industries uh, coming in. Um, how does that play out? And is that challenging uh, if these students are coming with, like, not necessarily the lens of uh, business theory or entrepreneurship in general? Right. They come from across the curriculum. Every major, every class year, every type of professional background in terms of the internships they've done or jobs they've had. And to be honest, very few of them have uh, practical economics backgrounds, accounting mm -hmm. and such. Uh, so, you know, the fake it till you make it expression <laughs> that we all use, uh, that's what we do. And a lot of it is learning on the fly. A lot of it is bringing in terrific supportive partners like Dave, who came to talk about legal basics. We have Wesleyan graduates and local professionals who ha donate a ton of time to support students in learning things like basic accounting. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. And it's, uh, it's interesting that you, you kind of talked about how a lot of these uh, future entrepreneurs are coming from so many different backgrounds. I mean, I think for the longest time, entrepreneurship was seen as a gift for um, students that are business students, economics, accounting majors, um, and that's really shifted. And you know, one of the things that we think about a lot at Reset is how is the next generation gearing up to think about themselves as entrepreneurs? And most of them are coming from these non-traditional backgrounds because they see a lot of challenges within their industries. Um, and especially when you're talking social enterprise, like you said, there's a big problem that they recognize. They wanna figure out how to either solve it or make the system more inefficient, or more efficient, not inefficient. Um, so that's, that's really awesome. I think uh, a lot of, I mean, we've had the honor of working with a couple of students from Wesleyan, and it's really awesome to see how that they're applying um, their kind of on the ground education uh, and tying it with a pretty wholesome experience. So that's pretty, Pretty awesome, and kudos to you, because I know you've got a lot of push behind that. Thank you. Well, you know, not to pat backs around the table, but really ours is one program in a much wider, more robust ecosystem. A lot of what goes on at Wesleyan is very focused either on campus or our local community mm -hmm. of Middletown, uh, but this Patricelli Center work, this social entrepreneurship at Wesleyan reaches out across the state and even beyond uh, and we've been very fortunate to have a lot of partners who can do the work with us. So tell us about uh, some of the current or former projects that your students have done that you found uh, to be interesting or exciting that you'd love to tell the community about. Great. So we just completed our 2017 seed grant competition. Uh, we have three winners who receive $5,000 each to seed a new project program or venture with potential for impact. So I'll start by telling you about those. Uh, the first one, Dream Chasers, is a nonprofit 501c3 founded by a Wesleyan junior named A.J. Wilson. He's from Kennesaw, Georgia, a little bit outside Atlanta. And what he saw growing up was that mentorship from other students was really pivotal for him personally. You know, they're 
great programs where there are teachers or other adults in the community who are trying to help students in lower performing schools or lower performing communities turn it around and chase their dreams, right? So what AJ saw was that it was really the relationships with peers that were much more uh, impactful for him personally and for his fellow students. So he started Dream Chasers, which is a program that helps students in the community he came from chase their dreams, whatever those dreams may be, college or otherwise. And it's based on a peer mentorship model where high school students mentor middle school students and college students mentor those same mm -hmm. high school students. And it becomes a real multi-generational community that feeds back into it. They also do community engagement programs, volunteer kind of stuff, and some educational programs. They also have an app called SHIP, School Help is Possible, which matches students with scholarship money that they wow. would be eligible for based on their interests and backgrounds. Um, and AJ, you know, he started this thing as a high school student. Wow. He's like, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna get to work here. And he's been making it up as he goes. But he is special. He's got that, that real entrepreneurial flair where you put him in front of a crowd and he's gonna wow everybody. And that has helped him get to where he is now, which is a thriving program in its own right. Um, but he's ready to scale and professionalize and look take a tough look at how this model is working or not working, bake in metrics so that he is able to measure not just outputs and outcomes, but really the impact of his program. And ultimately, he'd like to replicate it across the South and the Midwest, where there are a lot of schools with similar stats in terms of success or lack thereof uh, for the students. That's awesome. So that's our first one. Should I keep going? Go ahead. Please. All right. Our next one is run by Dennis White, a sophomore uh, who interned at Reset last summer. Dennis is a Posse scholar. The Posse Foundation, for those who don't know, has a couple different types of scholarships, one of which is for veterans. And Wesleyan is very lucky to be a Posse school. So we have three cohorts, freshmen, sophomores, and juniors of Posse scholars, and Dennis is one of them. He grew up in West Virginia. And like Dream Chasers, uh, his social mission is in the realm of education. He looks at the stats from his home area in West Virginia, uh, how few students are first going to college, and of those who do go, how many are leaving the state, which is essentially zero. Right. Uh, and the ones who stay in West Virginia for college are seeing abysmal rates of graduation mm. after four years, five years, six years, and beyond. And he just wants to open up the menu of choices. He wants to take the top performing students from West Virginia and show them that there are a lot of other options and that colleges, you know, like those across the Northeast, uh, some of them have extraordinary financial aid packages. And so that's one thing that's keeping West Virginian top performing students out of finding their dream school is that they think they can't afford it. But because schools like Wesleyan and Yale and Williams and others uh, do have the need-based financial aid that meets full need of the students, uh, Dennis wants to give them a summer boot camp to help them understand how college admission works, help them write their applications, and help them get on a path to the school that they would like to go to that matches their academic caliber, and really feedback ultimately to the economy and culture in West Virginia and to help bring some of these people out to other cities where they can learn tactics that they can use to help back home later. 
that's awesome. I uh, I had heard about him winning this competition. I was super excited, and it was it was funny because at first I thought he won it for his ice cream cart idea. I don't know if you're familiar with that. But, Tell uh, me about it. I don't. Yeah, uh, when he was interning over the summer with us. Um, this isn't something he's going to want to patent for later, right? I, uh, I think I'll, I'll be vague enough where I won't I won't uh, release <laughs> any trade secrets. <laughs> but um, uh, during our summer internship program, at the end, we ask all the students to. Um, do a full pitch of a business. It could be real or fake, um, but really taking a lot of what they learned about um, business model theory and what it what a uh, uh, investor's pitch deck looks like. Um, and so he decided to do it on something that he's always kind of toyed around with, which was a ice cream cart. And uh, I, w- I won't go into the details because he might want to pursue this soon. But uh, when, so when I heard that he won this competition, my first reaction was like, "Yes, ice cream! I can finally try his ice cream." But I guess we'll have to wait a little <coughs> bit on that one. <laughs> was it as good as the Cool Dog? Have you heard of the Cool Dog? The Cool Dog. I don't it was know. a uh, venture-backed company uh, oh, many years ago. Dog. That was uh, an ice Frozen. cream hot dog. Oh God! Come and, on, and Frozen hot dog. It was nice. it was ice cream in the shape of a hot dog, and it went and it went into a Twinkie-like bun, and then you could add condiments to it, like uh, you know, like chocolate sauce instead of ketchup or caramel instead of. That that's Actually, probably yeah. an awesome business. I mean, I, like. I, Listen, it, it received some venture funding. I, I bought some, and they uh, I had I, heard of the company, and I, and I bought some. They, they sold them at Fenway in a few different ballparks really? for a while, wow. I think. And then uh, and then I bought some at, uh, like, a uh, BJ's or huh. Sam, Sam's Club Costco kind of thing. And um, they weren't bad. They, right. they, they weren't – it was not a project I would have expected would have uh, – Received a ton of funding. And I, mean, gone. I can see it appealing to like a younger market. I'll you know, stick to kids. the chocolate tacos. Thank you very much. Well, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Classic choco taco. Like, and have you guys been in a candy store lately? They have baby bottles filled with this sour gel, this crazy stuff. Yeah. If that all works so well, why wouldn't the a hot yeah. dog? Baby work? bottle filled with sour gel. I don't even it's know. Baby bottle pops. Okay, those have been like around. I mean, I had those growing up in the nineties. So. Hey, bottle cap. I can't I, believe I, I just I, dropped I, that. Let me. <laughs> Take that back. Can we Whoa. delete that off? No, screen? no, we can't because then I can't talk about Ring Pops. Ring Pops, ring are pops they're, they're still pretty cool. I go to music Every festivals. Every bachelorette party. I hand out, hand out those Ring Pops. People love you. They're like, oh, my God. They make so much money. I mean, it's ridiculous. So, Dave, why do you think the uh, hot dog ice cream didn't work? Was it bad? No. I, I mean, it worked well for a while. I, ju- I assume the company's gone because I have not seen it in... Uh, you know, I've never seen it. It probably got bought out by Choco Taco because yeah, the maybe that's competition. I, so <laughs> I, I, I can't say it didn't work. I can just say that that you know, a, as an attorney who works with a lot of entrepreneurs, I've heard a lot of ideas over the years, and some I I assumed would make it, some would, some I didn't think would, and over the years I realized this is why I'm not an investor because <laughs> uh, you know I I'm I'm not the one to place the bet on it unless I hear something that's completely crazy or, or you know then then I'll just say no I don't you know I don't, I don't think we're gonna put a lot of resources into that but uh well, conventional wisdom would say that if the folks behind it uh weren't fully invested and gave it their all then that could have been one of the reasons I, true. they I, are still for sale by the way i'm looking at the cool dog and that's what it's called not the hot dog the cool dog yeah it was the cool dog that's what i said right yeah and um apparently they're only in massachusetts 
Well, that's wonderful, That would make though. sense. Yeah, Good that for them sense. that they're still there. I agree. Yeah. Their website's terrible if you're hearing this. Uh, change your website, please. But, <laughs> I mean, otherwise, yeah, it looks like they're just they're just rocking it up in uh, Massachusetts. Well, for what it's worth, my 10-year-old daughter uh, insists that I make her what she calls ham dogs when we do barbecues. It's a hamburger shaped like a hot dog wow. on a hot dog bun. Huh. And we didn't do a, a solid Google search to see if it exists, but it might be her idea. Well, so th- what I always tell people is people ask me, well, what have you heard for bad ideas, right? And, and the one I tell them is, because I've talked to this person, uh, so I have permission to disclose this. <laughs> the, uh, but, but the person came in one time and said, uh, said okay, so what I want to do is a do-it-yourself tattoo removal machine mm-hmm. in a mall. <laughs> 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 you know, where you, where you sort of stick your arm in the device and it takes oh, off that man. heart-shaped tattoo that you got at a, after a bad night of drinking. Talk about liability, too. Uh, well, that was my thought. Is like, listen, if you just want to – I don't want to really – I don't think I can work on this, but if you want to let me know before you do it so I can alert my litigators, <laughs> we'd uh, – They could <laughs> set up a pop-up <laughs> shop right <laughs> next yeah, to it. A new <laughs> brand-new practice worth offering any practice just get, just get lots of insurance when people like pull out their arm out and there's no hand anymore <laughs> <laughs> anyways um not so not a social enterprise <laughs> probably not i uh i have this debate a lot with my students and some of the volunteers for the patricelli center uh, you know where's the line between traditional enterprise and social enterprise i'm sure the mm, same conversation yeah. happens every, every day set. every day so what do you what's your answer and then i'll tell you mine it's tough. Um, you know, I think at least in a lot of the work that we've done, every organization has a different definition of social entrepreneurship. Um, and we go back and forth between the the business is set up uh, with an inherent social mission versus adding it on as a we'd like to have it versus not. Um, and it's really tough, especially when you're working within a geography where social entrepreneurship is not necessarily booming up, right? I think Wesleyan, you have a lot of like-minded students where they are really interested in social entrepreneurship. Um, And when you go out kind of into the the kind of non-institutional focus areas, when we're in Hartford, um, when we started, no one knew what social entrepreneurship is, and there's still plenty of people that don't understand it. So we had to kind of step outside of our comfort and definition range and be a little bit more flexible in terms of explaining it and figuring out how we can encourage more social entrepreneurship by just teaching this is what it is so how do you work your way up towards that Um, but it's it's tough could you would you be comfortable giving an example of something that sort of wants to call itself social entrepreneurship but you you can't quite make that argument even if it's a fictional example sure definitely um so yeah not gonna necessarily go into specific companies, but um, one of the areas where we struggle as a staff in terms of defining it as a social entrepreneurship or not um, is in the medical device field, right? So medical devices are solving some sort of healthcare problems. And you would think, okay, they're solving an, a health issue, right? Prosthetics or whatever it might be. So they have a positive impact uh, on the well-being of humans. But if the device is being created for the sole purpose of advancing the medical device field and and creating more money through medical devices instead of saying, you know, it's different. So I think what could be a social enterprise is if someone came in and said, we're going to find a much more cheaper and eco-friendly way to create a prosthetic arm uh, that's available and affordable for everyone. That is a social enterprise because they're going after it, thinking about how they have a positive impact, whereas 
I'm just going to create a new prosthetic. Um, yeah, that makes perfect sense yeah. to me. My my casual answer and sort of the haha answer is. Uh, I heard this from somebody else, so I, I can't take credit for it. But social entrepreneurship is like pornography. There's no standard <laughs> definition, but you know it when you see it. I've heard this before. So I, I thought that was. Art. I've heard this before, <laughs> Shagley. So, so that's that's an easy go-to. But I I agree with you, Ojala, that building it into the structure of the organization is inherently the most important piece. Although at Wesleyan, I actually have a lot of projects that I'll call social entrepreneurship absolutely but I'm not sure if out there in the world they yeah. would they would actually meet that barometer so yes. you know for instance a lot of two-sided marketplace things like mm -hmm. ride sharing projects yep. or event posting and calendaring things where students can find out where the community things are happening I mean that it, it has it a positive will, impact. It on will the have a good impact, yeah. um, but it it doesn't fit squarely in the social entrepreneurship yeah. space. So maybe I think this is an interesting discussion because I think there's a difference between social entrepreneurship and what in the legal industry we would put as benefit companies, mm -hmm. right? So I disagree with you. Okay. Wow, so I'm disagreeing with the lawyer on a legal. Structure. Well, yeah, no, no, no. So, wow. so <laughs> this is going to be fun. So let's get in, let's get into this stuff because this is where I think the distinction is. Is that it's interesting how you define social entrepreneurship. Whereas uh, sort of the legal expression of this, for those who aren't aware, is really the creation of a new type of entity under the law that you can register, which is called a benefit corporation. Um, and, in, and in three states, uh, I think it's Pennsylvania, Maryland, and Oregon, they're benefit LLCs. They mm -hmm. have those as well. And hopefully by the end of this year, uh, Connecticut will have benefit LLCs. Uh, Absolutely. I know the legislation is out there because I helped draft it, so that's kind of nice. Um, and then, uh, but and I know it's before <laughs> the legislature. Then we'll see what happens. Hey, don't it. laugh, Chris. I'm snickering. Wh when was the last legislation you drafted? Seriously, no. And <laughs> I, 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 I just want to make a quit side pump remark for Dave. This is probably yeah. the only time I'm going to be inflating Dave's ego, Meh. but. Uh, Dave's been an awesome uh, steward and champion of social entrepreneurship for this state um, alongside Reset, but really going above and beyond to make sure that this legislation gets introduced uh, over at the state legislature. So thank you, Dave. You're quite welcome. And eh, uh, that's, your, right. that's your one for the year. Was, so. it, was that song that uh, Maui sings in Moana? <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah. Go ahead. Sing it. Go ahead. Uh, no, it. I won't do that. Uh, come I, on. Don't, don't bring do it up that to and us. Sing it. I can't. I don't want to lose any more audience than we already have at this point. <laughs> but I, mean, I, I will also add my thanks while we're on this detour because Dave has also donated time to support my students, which is way above and beyond. Uh, and some, most of them are just getting started understanding the variations on legal structure and the fact that legal structure does matter uh, in terms of how to best make their idea sustainable. Yeah. Financially, you know, the lines between for-profit, non-profit, B Corp, hybrid, you name it, are blurrier and blurrier. And so Dave has just, I think, gotten started helping so, my students. So let's so let's talk about the blurry line with a benefit corporation for a moment. Because a benefit corporation has to have a social mission, right? But that mission doesn't have to do doesn't have to do anything with what the corporate perspective is. So for instance, I could own a business that's sole goal is to proliferate the use of asbestos as far and wide as it possibly can. And I want everybody to use it. I, I manufacture asbestos. So I want to sell it everywhere. But I give every dime of my profits to a charity. I could register that as benefit corporation, and that would be a benefit corporation. I, I, and I would say that that is a social enterprise because you've created the company and agreed to put into your legal DNA, you know, your DNA that you're giving all of your profits may it not be creating a direct 
um, social or environmental benefit, but you are creating a direct positive impact. So if I'm one of those healthcare companies you mentioned, I'm manufacturing a, a, a medical device, which you said was really not a social entrepreneur, mm-hmm. um, but, it, but if I put into my legal DNA... That uh, that I don't know how to turn off my cell phone ring. Sorry, yeah, oh, yeah. know it's on. It's never on. The There's one time like I so didn't tell everyone to silence their phones. Chris fault. <laughs> so Michaela's silencing <laughs> hers now too. <laughs> so, so no, if I if I put into my if I put into my charter uh, or if I I don't even have to put my charter. My charter all I have to say is that I'm, I want to do a social benefit mission, and then I but then I do something where I only hire uh, ex convicts to work at my company. Um, and I manufacture metal devices. That would also be a social benefit. Sure, but but that that's what so I was saying that. earlier. Is that there's a difference between just a medical device company that's making medical devices yeah. for sole profit, or a medical device company that is doing more, right? Um, if you're saying that you, regardless of who it is, you're always going to be yeah. hiring ex-cons, um, and it's 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 you're providing opportunity to those that wouldn't otherwise necessarily have it. Um, and it's in your so it's always going to happen. Yep. It's not like oh today I feel like doing it tomorrow I don't. Um, then yeah, that's that's a social enterprise because it's it's in the DNA. Well, it's a, it, I think it's interesting because I think that people don't think of it that way. People, it, the number one conversation that I have with entrepreneurs at Reset, as well as with the, some of the people who spoke to me after my presentation at the Patrick Sully Center, as well as elsewhere, I did, we just um, just moderated a panel at Yale about two weeks ago mm-hmm. on this, and uh, and the number one conversation I have is people say, well. You know, they tell me what their business does, and they say, is that a social enterprise? And what I have to tell them, I said, it doesn't matter what your business does. Right. It, it matters. I mean, it could be about what your business does, but it matters to the law. It matters more about what other things you're doing to make it a social enterprise. More so the why. It's it's not the what of your business. It's yeah. the why, right? So if you're, you're starting a – I decide to, you know, sell a new beverage brand, and it's basically Coke with a different label – um, I'm doing it because I want to use that as a platform to be able to hire previously incarcerated individuals, or I want to do it because I know I'll make money and I want 100% of the profits to go towards a charity that I believe yes. in. Um, so it's it's a why behind. Yep. Your as long as what you're decision. doing isn't technically illegal, you right. can and you Coca Cola. Let me that <laughs> asbestos <laughs> example really has well, me derailed over the, here. The only re- the only reason why I bring that up is because is because I, I always give people this sort of extreme example but I'm saying but I want to I try to illustrate them it doesn't matter what your company does and usually what I tell people is you could be a tobacco company and you could and see, you see could that that them. that though maybe I didn't pay attention to the what the company does I focus so much on focus on when yeah. you gave that example but I, I, I do think it's it's challenging right I also think that there should be some ethical governance structure and ethical staffing structure in yeah. place that would actually mitigate that. So I think that your board or your leadership on your team would come to you and say, okay, uh, social impact is our top priority. I think that because of what we're selling, not why we're selling yeah. it, because we want to do good things with the profit, that we're actually lowering our ultimate performance in terms of social impact. So let's reevaluate the market, find a way to sell something other than asbestos or mm-hmm. even other than soda mm-hmm. uh, so that we can actually keep making as much mm-hmm. to give to charity or so that we can continue hiring as many, if not more, formerly incarcerated individuals. Um, but we can we can increase our net impact yeah. by selling something that doesn't actually harm people. Yeah. And, I don't, and I don't actually, I don't disagree with you guys. I'm just playing devil's advocate. I'm just, but the, but the law, the, the, if you're actually creating a benefit corporation, 
as a legal entity. That wouldn't matter. Mm -hmm. Now, what you're, what, what you're talking about are sort of uh, philosophical or guiding management principles that I think are important for social entrepreneurs. And in that case, I, I look at organizations sort of like uh, conscious capitalism, right? I mean, there's an organization that, that more than anything really wants stakeholder involvement, right? Everybody, everybody has to be thinking about everyone else, like not just, not just owners. I don't mean shareholders. Mm -hmm. I mean stakeholders, people. You know who are the who are the vendors to this company? Who are the customers of the company? Who are the who are the employees? And, and are they all involved in making good decisions for the company? Um, and, and really thinking about what you know how the company brings the most not only as a company but to the community in which it operates. Uh, I think those principles. I, I always I'm trying to think how to express this, but I think in, I have this sort of internal debate about. I think having benefit companies and benefit LCs, benefit corporations, I think it's very important. But I, I think people can mistake that as an end goal and not as a tool. Right. Yeah. I hate to say this while we're in this beautiful law firm, but <laughs> the law can only take us so far. It's a huge piece of this, Definitely. you know, policy, uh, what happens in the public sector and what happens, you know, in offices with a legal advisor who's going to help you decide on your legal yeah. structure. Drones. That's really important. Not drones. We call them drones. That's really important. <laughs> Brutal. But it's not the end of the story. You know, back to sort of what I do at Wesleyan and what Ojala does across the region is I would say not just ecosystem building, but mindset development yeah. for young people, for aspiring entrepreneurs, for existing entrepreneurs, so that they can start to bake in these values across the board in what they mm -hmm. do. Mm -hmm. Actually, I, I think that's a uh, excellent point because uh, that it just brings back this whole idea, you know, every, a lot of people want to start a business, but nobody wants to be the big corporate bad guy. At least most people don't. You assume no one wants to be Biff Tannen, you know, so... Just this that, whole that, that was a Back to the Future reference. I like Back to the oh, Future. Oh, that you <laughs> that know, guy. Wait, you know Biff's last name? Yeah. <laughs> wow. I have the trilogy on Blu-ray. Come on, let's go. That is hardcore. I was I was in I was trying to get those uh, self-leasing shoes. Is that a social enterprise? Like no. <laughs> <laughs> so no one wants to be Biff. Tannen? Tannen, yeah. Nobody wants to be the big, bad, rich guy, right? At least these days. I feel like there definitely seems to be more of this, when it comes to entrepreneurs, a lot more people are considering what you guys are talking about, the, the ethical ramifications. I want to make money, but I also want to do it in a way that is not harming my fellow per people. Uh, yes, and I think that that is a shift in mindset that's generational. Um, mm -hmm. I, and I think that's part of the challenge when we go out and talk about social entrepreneurship and mm -hmm. try to convince folks that, you know, social entrepreneurship is a real option um, and it's not going to hurt the way that you do business. It's not it's going to help improve it on the long run. It's going to help not only sustain, uh, sustain your company, but just your community, the economy, the, the world, depending on you know what it is you're doing. Um, and, and there is a major differentiation in mindset between. Um, the de generation that was, you know, pre-economic decline in 2000s, um, that is baby boomers. Not to kind of group them all together or anything, but there, there, there is, um, and and the the kind of I want to say, you know, 90s and 2000s kids that are now graduating out of college and hitting the marketplace, they have a very 
very different mindset yeah. in terms of what they're looking for um, in terms of satisfaction from a career. We do a survey of all of our interns at the end of the program, um, and we ask them, you know, what in the in the beginning we ask them what brought you here, and in the end we ask you what is it that's most important when you think about a career. And we give them like seven to ten different options, you know, salary, benefits, um, obviously social impact because that's something that is important to us. And in the last cohort, the top in everyone's top three was the impact that the company they're working for is creating. I mean, that is like a big value for them. There's a national organization called Net Impact that Mm -hmm. did a survey back in 2010, so that's a long time ago now, uh, where that generation, this generation is saying uh, they're gonna prioritize corporate culture and working environment and mission over salary. Absolutely. You know, there's not a lot of data out there to show that in practice that's exactly what's happening, but I work with 18 to 22-year-olds every day. Right. Uh, and to me, it is crystal clear that they are going to have their conscience drive a lot of their decision-making going forward. They are very concerned about the state of the world, and they're taking it one step further. The students I work with are taking it one step further, not just how can I, you know, launch a business or work for a business that does net good, um, but how can I actually dig a little deeper and think about what's wrong and what are the causes of that? What are the root exactly. causes? Uh, and how can I push levers and tweak systems rather than band-aids? You know, direct impact, boots on the ground, social service work is utterly critical. Yep. We need it in all sectors. But um, even better, if we can recreate and reconfigure systems so that less bad stuff happens in the future. That's what my students are primarily looking at. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. (laughs) I was just going to say, there's actually two points. I think when I talk to, uh, when I talk to entrepreneurs, what I tell them about, about sort of a mind shift that I've seen is that companies are are no longer, or people are no longer from businesses as to figure out how I'm going to make the most amount of money or even for the primary factor of making money necessarily. Um, I always say that, you know, what I'm seeing for people is that companies are an expression of themselves. They're forming companies to figure out a way to show people who they are and what they believe in in a different way. Um, and it's interesting when I see these companies come through, say, traditional incubators, um, because I, I see both sides. I work with the social entrepreneurship side, I work with regular entrepreneurs, and, and uh, sometimes judges and mentors at traditional incubators don't know what to do. Uh, because they, what they expect is they expect a company to come forward and ask for cash. <laughs> and they want as much cash in a, from a, like a venture-type investor as they can get to grow as fast as possible to sell. But most people forming social enterprises don't want to sell as soon as possible because they're thinking, how long can I make an impact? How much can I carry this out? This is much more of a lifestyle business. This business is me. It's not, it's not a Series A investor coming in and putting in capital. This is, this is part of who I am. And so, so they start asking for other things. Because as a company, if you're an entrepreneur listening out there, you should always have an ask. There should always be something you're asking for, whether it's uh, guidance or access to markets or, or people or introductions or whatever. But, but they start asking for other things. And the mentors are like, wait a minute, uh, where's the money? Uh, you know, what, you know we, don't, we only know how to do this in our perspective of, of venture capital. And uh, it, it always leads to interesting situations. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a tricky balance too I mean a lot of the social entrepreneurs that come to us um, a lot of times we find ourselves with amazing ambitious driven social entrepreneurs that really have a grasp on the mission that they are focusing on 
Um, what they don't have a grasp on is how are they going to get there financially? Um, and sometimes we play the job of the bad guy where we're saying, listen, you need to think about your revenue stream. You know, either is it through the sales of pro the product and service that you're selling or mm -hmm. um, are you taking the nonprofit route and you're looking at, you know, having funding coming in, but you really need to figure that out before you can make an impact. And I think the other part of this um, that's also very difficult is how do you measure their impact, right? Um, that's something that we constantly are thinking about because our reset's success um, is not only driven by the economic development metrics, like how many jobs is a company creating, what's the revenue they're generating, what kind of investment are they getting? Um, that's, that's how startups have always been sort of measured, um, and we feel like that is really incorrect to do, um, both for a social enterprise and a non-social enterprise. For non-social enterprise, the company is probably too early in the first one to three years of existence to be creating any type of numbers um, that will make a significant impact, right? Um, and the, for social entrepreneurs, how do you measure the, the social impact that they're creating, right? And it's different for everyone. Obviously, you can take different assessments like the B Corp assessment um, that B Labs has put out, um, and there, there's a bunch of others, um, but it's different for each of them. And then how do we say, you know, this is how we've measured the increase in the impact of a company. It's always very, very challenging, especially when you could be in any industry um, out there. And how do you measure the growth of a uh, social enterprise. Social enterprises might not necessarily be creating jobs unless that's what their impact is, right? Mm -hmm. um, but it's like you and I were talking about before we started recording Ojala about how it's as much about the person as their project program or venture. Uh, if we are educating a generation of future employees and leaders who are nimble and responsive and have deep critical thinking skills and problem solving skills. Uh, that's the impact that we're hoping to have. And yep. I believe that's in large part the impact reset is having, is mindset shifting Definitely. and equipping people, not necessarily with hard skills, although boy, pitching and you know putting together a balance sheet, those are hard skills, but that sort of, that sixth sense for tackling, pro identifying problems, tackling those problems, yep. being nimble, being sustainable. Uh, that's what you guys are doing for the people who come through your programs. Yeah, and it's, 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 you know, it's more about that skill set that they can take with them, even if their first venture fails. Um, and let's be real, startup failure rates are higher than any other failure rates in this country for the most part. Um, and so, you know, being able to take those skills and apply them maybe to a different venture or to advance your career within a you know traditional job market, um, I think that's 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 really important. But again, how do you measure the growth of an individual um, outside of say a college or right? Institute, I was going right? to say we're, you we're great. We you get can the say grade. What, exactly. We get to uh, ask them as they exit. Yeah. You know, like you do with your interns. Yeah. What can not? What do you know now that you didn't know before? What but what increased? can you do now yeah. that you couldn't Absolutely. do before? I also a little bit of a non sequitur, but this conversation also makes me think about what CT Next is doing yep. and how there are 
what do they call them, quasi-public agencies that are also really laying tracks, doing ecosystem building around this same type of thing. And so, you know, little shameless shout out to CT Next for the same kind of work that they're doing, especially with Innovation Places, this yep. initiative that's taking cities around the state and helping them imagine what they will look like in the future to become innovation right. hubs. And it's not about, okay, what's the one unicorn idea that we're going to launch here on Main Street in Middletown. It's right. not that at all. It's how can we create an entire environment for our city that's going to nurture these kind of people. Yeah, definitely. And Kayla, what got you into this in the first place? What got me into this? Yeah. Huh. So I graduated from Wesleyan actually in 1998 uh, with a bachelor's degree in neuroscience and behavior. Uh, which yeah, really, right? <laughs> it, it was really half bio, half psych, because like the rest of my life, I can't usually pick one thing. I have to try, <laughs> try a lot of things. Um, and really what I was interested in as I was preparing to graduate was nonprofit management career path type stuff, in particular women's reproductive health. Really, I wanted to work for Planned Parenthood. That brand was as strong then as it is now for progressive people. And so I just had my sights set on working for Planned Parenthood. So I moved to Boston because that's where my friends were moving. And I took some other job for a few months while I kept, you know, banging on the door at <laughs> Planned Parenthood League of Massachusetts. Can I please have a job? Can I please have a job? And eventually I took an entry level position there. And I moved throughout the departments and the administration, not in the clinic. Um, and learned about how, really learned by watching how nonprofit works, how nonprofits work, how how we raised money, how we lobbied down at the state house, how we cultivated relationships with all of our supporters, uh, how we ran a you know highly functioning clinic and series of clinics, um, and so it was a great learning experience. It was like a. a uh, I don't know, a quick master's degree in how all of this works. Um, and life brought me back to Connecticut not long after, and I took a job back at Wesleyan at my alma mater working in the alumni office, uh, and I figured I'd stay a year or two while I figured out what was next, and that was 17 years ago. <laughs> so I've been back at Wesleyan doing a variety of jobs, a lot of them having to do with uh, relationship building and project management. And I joke that the truth is I really don't know that much about social entrepreneurship, uh, but I know a lot about relationship building and project management, and that is in large part what early, early stage social entrepreneurs need to master first yeah. uh, so that they can handle whatever comes their way. Right. I once heard on another podcast, actually, um, a beautiful way of describing this, this idea of um, wayfinding versus navigation. So navigation, you know where your goal is, you know where your destination is, and you need to navigate and make choices to get there. Wayfinding is a lot more ambiguous, but a lot more important. And so, I don't know, maybe my career has some wayfinding in it, or my, my mindset has a lot of wayfinding mm -hmm. in it, and that's what I want to impart to my students, is that you don't know what the destination is. I, you know, I still don't think of myself as having a career, per se, um, but knowing what you care about, knowing what you're good at, that's very important, and then making choices while also being very open to serendipity along the way. So I love to think about wayfinding instead of navigation, um, and maybe that describes what I've done. 
as, as Moana would say, you never know how far <laughs> oh they'll go. Oh, my God. You, you know Lin-Manuel Miranda, <laughs> who wrote the soundtrack for Moana, is the guy who created Hamilton, Hamilton yes. and who graduated from Wesleyan. That's right. So um, my, my father, who was a career teacher and, you know, not in the social entrepreneurship world whatsoever, but thinks that he can give me the best advice <laughs> for my job, says that my single goal, my single measurable, deliverable over my career at Wesleyan should be finding and identifying the next Lin-Manuel Miranda. <laughs> and it's actually not the worst idea yeah. because if I can discover <laughs> the next Lin, I'm good. Yeah. Success. Well, you know, it's it's funny. One of the last questions I normally ask people, Michaela, is uh, is what would you what advice would you pass on to potential social entrepreneurs? And I, I think you've just hit it already. Um, so great job in, in anticipating the the question. Is there anything else that you'd want to say to say to entrepreneurs starting out there, especially social entrepreneurs? I think to reiterate what I just said, the, the know what you care about, know what you're good at, but be very open to what's going to happen step by step really is key. And I think people tend to know that um, on the surface level, but when the going gets tough, they quickly forget those things. So roll with it, you know persevere through the challenging parts, um, but at at its core, know who you are, what you're good at, and what you care about, and let those things guide you. Excellent. Beautiful. Thank you very much for coming. We really appreciate it. Hope to have you back. Thanks for having me. That was fun. I hope next time I can bring my students. Absolutely. We'll need a bigger room. <laughs> and more microphones. Thank you very much. Bye, everyone. Thank you for listening to the CT Startup Podcast. We want to thank our audio sponsor, the Murphy Kalina Law Firm, our guests for their time and input, our production company, Sublime Exposure Online, and of course you, our listeners, for helping make all this possible. Make sure to check out our Facebook page, our webpage at ctstartup.com, and our Twitter at ctstartupcast. And please make sure to join our newsletter for all the latest information on the Connected Startup Show.